You are listening to the Sunday Sauce Podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome back. Another interview with the Sunday Sauce Podcast, boys. This is going to be a fun one for all you sports gamblers out there. We know you've got a lot of you listening. Sports coming back. We figured it was only right to have a gentleman on today who's been in and around sports industry and uh, I'm sorry, the gambling industry rather. Um, I usually do some extravagant, extravagant introduction, but I didn't want to uh, do it the wrong way here. But today we do have Mr. Joe Ruff on to uh, talk to us all things sports gambling. How are you, Joe? I'm good, guys. How are you? I'm good. We're doing good. So you obviously mean if you don't know who Joe is, you're going to learn and it's going to be an amazing story because his background is wild. So I guess we'll start there, Joe. I mean, you can tell it probably better than anybody, obviously. So you want to just kind of go like as much as you want to go in detail, kind of how you got to where you're at today and just kind of what went down along the way. All right. Sounds good. Um, you know, I'm originally from New Haven, Connecticut, a town called Brantford. It's about uh, two towns over, two towns east of uh, New Haven. And uh, growing up as a kid, my, you know, my brother was a compulsive gambler. So was I, but uh, you know, he's eight years older than me. So, you know, I always wanted to do everything my brother did. And I remember being like five or six years old and having crap games in the basement, <laughs> you know, and me trying to get five bucks from my mother just to play craps. And uh, you know, I, I mean, I was calculating odds at six years old. Like you could say it was kind of in my blood, but you know, we, we moved to Rochester when I was eight and uh when I got my first job working at a chicken restaurant and the guy that owned the chicken restaurant was a guy by the name of Paul Borelli. And uh, he later in life kind of became my mentor. And then later on in life kind of became a rat and uh, was going to testify against me. But Mm -hmm. um, you know, for a long time, me and him were really close. And at 14, I'm working for him in the chicken restaurant. And by the time I'm 16, the restaurant's about to close and I'm in the sports betting at this point. And he was a very, very sharp better. So he started teaching me how to bet sports. And uh, we kind of went partners betting. And I was kind of like his front. And then, uh, you know, a couple of years down the road, he was looking to, he had some legal problems from years before. He was coming out of it and he was looking for somebody to, you know, more or less be a partner in, in sports, sports booking. And uh, that's kind of how it started. And, and, and it got derailed right away. You know, in our second season, um, we got raided by the state police, New York State Police. And it was in like December of, I don't know, I would say, I'm guessing 2003 or 2004. And uh, we get raided by the state police. I'm living in an apartment downtown that's being financed by the bookmaking operation. Um, and, and they knock my door in. And I'm like, sho- I'm like shocked a little bit. You know, I'm, 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 you know, I'm shitting my pants actually, but (laughs) you know, I know, I I know, I know, keep my mouth shut and just let's see what happens. And it it Mm -hmm. turned out to be a bullshit thing. The problem was, is that was at like 11 AM in the morning. Well, when four o'clock rolled around, the phones were still ringing. The cops were gone. I started taking bets again and (laughs) they, they, they came back four weeks later, the same cops and they were fucking pissed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, are we allowed to swear boys oh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, oh okay 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 and they and, and they were fucking pissed so um you know i i learned right away i kind of threw in the towel that season and when the next season started up um it was just there was another guy involved with this back then and then it was just me and paul 
and it started off as like, you know, in 2004, 2005, 30 customers. And by the time I got arrested in 2014, I mean, you're talking, um, you know, 400 customers plus I was taking business from, you know, half the Buffalo Sabres, half the Toronto Maple Leafs, a couple New Jersey Devils. Um, I mean, it had really blossomed into something that I had never imagined it could have. And it, it, you know, and as, as high as it goes, it comes down as hard, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I did it all um, from a bookmaking standpoint. I did it all from a gambling standpoint. And, you know, I, I paid the ultimate price. I ended up serving a uh, sentence to 41 months in federal prison, you know, ended up serving uh, 18 months on the sentence, um, got out on a reduction. And uh, I've been home now since October of 2016 you know, doing well. I got two businesses. They both do good. My wife does good with her job. Just trying to keep my nose clean. There you go. I got to ask you though. So after that, you said, you mentioned like, like, Oh, three, Oh, four, the first time the cops like really got up your ass. Like how did that not like scare you straight? Like, okay, I got, I can't, I can't keep doing this (laughs) because you obviously (laughs) kept going for a little bit more. (laughs) When I tell you all these stories, your father's going to want (laughs) to (laughs) move. I mean, I, I grew up in a family. So when I get arrested in 2014, you know, my one half brother calls me and congratulates me because I'm technically (laughs) the the last rough not to, to, I'm the last rough to be arrested, the last male rough. Everyone has been arrested. And, you know, my brother, my father, my two half brothers had all been to prison at one point or another, whether it was for six months or a longer period of time. So like, it, I don't know, I kind of like grew up around it. You know, it didn't, it didn't scare me I, it, where, mm-hmm. where it would scare some people. It really didn't, I, you know, I, I, I never really, so I ended up with a disturbing the peace ticket on the state case. So it's like, okay, when you walk away from a disturbing, like, why would you be deterred to not do it again? Yeah, you know, it's like, a, like, a, like a slap on the <laughs> wrist almost. Yeah, it was a speeding ticket's worse. <laughs> so, yeah. Interesting. It's not as mad. Frank, you got anything? So, how did, so how did, so that, yeah, I'm going to stay on that, that first time they raid you back in the go 304. How did the cops know that you were running that business? Like, were they, they have like, they like so, a wiretap or something like that? Were they able yeah, to? They, yeah, they get wiretaps, but because uh, the case never went really forward, so like everybody got a disturbing the peace ticket in it, like a year later, um, they don't really release how they got to your wiretaps. So you don't know what really started the case. The funny thing was, is, is years later, and I'm not going to mention his name because I do like the kid. Uh, his father was, was um, I went to high school with this kid and his father was betting me. And years later I'm driving with the kid and we're, we're going to a store or something. And he's like, we're talking about his dad. I'm asking him how his dad's doing. Cause I didn't talk to his dad in years. And he says, Oh, my dad's doing good. You know, ever since he caught that drug case four or five years ago, you know? And I'm like, Oh, drug case. He's like, yeah, he's like, but he didn't, you know, he just cooperated and he got a bunch of people in trouble and he never did any time. So I'm thinking back to that and the time frames just matched up. And I'm wondering if like, he may have been the, you know, I mean, you could play that game all day long. Who could have been the link? And, right. You know. But the second case here, uh, the one that really got me in trouble with the feds, um, that got started. So uh, there was a lady by the name Yolanda in Greece, and she was taking bets for another bookmaker in town. And I happened to be betting that bookmaker. And she got wiretapped for like her boyfriend's drug case. They picked up her betting the bookmaker, tapped him, and then I'm sure my name was on their bulletin board. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and that's how it started. So they, they originally told the judge that I had been taking bets, and um, it was actually complete bullshit. I wasn't taking it, but I was making a bet, and I could have won that part of the case. But the issue is, is once it goes federal, the federal court really doesn't care if you're right or wrong. They're still going to look at it as is. Okay, you're right. You win that, but we got all this evidence because yeah. of it, and in that evidence is true. So the case is going to stand. If it stayed in state court, I could have had the case thrown out. Hmm. But because it went federal, the, they they play a whole different ball game. Right. Yeah. yeah, they go that next level deeper. Probably they're like, all right, you won this part, but it's like we're going to get your ass in the end of it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's like in my case, I, I pled guilty to a you know numerous charges, but my biggest thing was an extortion charge that gave me um, the amount of time they wanted to give me. Being a first time offender on a gambling case, even in federal court, you're not looking at much time if you're looking at time at all. So they wanted be, they wanted to hit me with this extortion charge, and you know at best they had a shaky case with it. And, um, you know, the problem is, is if I went to trial and I beat the extortion charge, but lose the gambling charge, which most likely I would have lost, the judge could still sentence you as if you're convicted of the extortion charge. So it's like, what's the point of fighting? Yeah. You don't have any options. So it's unless you want to be like on a suicide mission and it's easier just to plead guilty and bite the bullet, I guess. (laughs) Pay your time and get come back. (laughs) Crazy, man. So like, I'm pretty, uh, I'm, I'm pretty like betting naive. I don't know much, Bob. I don't, I don't gamble that often. I don't know if Frankie does, but you mentioned you start like, you know, 30, 40 people betting with you. Then it jumped to like, you know, 300 plus you said, what makes yeah. it like, what's like a draw? Like, why did people like start going to you? It's like, you were just taking like the most, like the most bets or how, like, why that jump so high? Well, you know, over time people know, um, you know, if you're a gambler, you're going to know, uh, okay, who your local bookie is and who's the guy that's paying, but you're also going to know how strong he is. Meaning, you know, if I won 10,000, do I get paid? Um, right. mm-hmm. You know, and with your local small guy, you know, those are numbers that you may feel comfortable with. You may not. Most guys are honorable and good, but, you know, over time you work up a reputation where people know they're getting paid and they know they're getting paid on time. We had a, we had a, pro, um, we had a, a situation where if you won for me, you got paid on Monday. So the week ended Sunday night, we made all our payouts on Monday and then we waited to collect from everybody, you know, cause it really didn't matter if player a paid to play B or B, you still owed player B. Some guys are like, well, I got to get this. I got to get that. You know, they don't have the bankroll to work with. And once we established that, you know, we were the people you wanted to play with. That's good. You, you, you knew you were going to get paid. I mean, and, and end result is, 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 you know, I slowly worked my way into some hockey players and, and, that was ending to be my downfall just because when you work the numbers so high, there's only yeah. so much you could do, you know? And, and I started off at, you know, like five grand a game with one guy. And then before you know it, he's playing 40 grand a game Damn. and it's, you know, <laughs> guy goes bad at five grand a game. He's going to lose a hundred thousand, maybe 250,000 in a couple of weeks. You know, he goes bad at 40,000 a game. You're talking millions of dollars. Jeez. You know, and it, it, there comes a point where just getting the cash is too hard to do. And then you got to, yeah. you know, then you're money laundering and you're doing this and you're doing. And before you know it, the feds think you're teeth into you and you're, you're screwed. That's crazy. Were you like ever like once you started getting these big time clients that were playing hockey, were you ever like, oh, shit, like this is getting too big for us to like handle? <laughs> Or is that how the laundering so, stuff started? So, or were you like excited so, and like, oh, my God, this is awesome? <laughs> well, well, see, the story is, is 
the, the first time I took plays from Thomas Vanek, um, I, I was taking business with him and, and Paul Borelli together. Uh, and, and Paul's a stickler for the old way of doing things. So Paul's limits were you could bet $2,000 a game and the guy had a, a weekly limit of $20,000. And the guy loses the 20 grand the first week, pays. Loses the 20 grand the second week, pays. Loses the 20 grand the third week, pays. Well, on the third week, he says, hey, can I bet five grand on the Sunday night game? At the time, I didn't have that much money. So like, I, that was a huge, huge thing for me. And I tell Paul, and he says, nope, guy's got to play the, you know, he could have 2000 but he can't have 5000 so the go between me and the guy says, guy just paid you 60 grand. You really want me to tell him he can't play five? And I think about it for a minute. I'm like, you're right. You can't do that. You know, tell him I'll take the five and I keep it myself. He loses, he pays. Next week, same thing happens. Loses, he pays. Then the go between says to me, listen, he's just a pain in the ass. I can't deal with him. I'm giving him your phone number. If he wants something extra, he'll call you. So that first week, I, I give him like another phone number to call. And I tell him, just text what you want to it. And on a sun and a Saturday during college basketball season at five grand a game, he texts me like 78 plays. And at that <laughs> point, I'm, I'm just like dumbfounded. I'm like, oh, my God, that is a crazy, crazy, crazy amount of number of plays. And, you know, I'm starting to see cash registers. <laughs> and I'm just like, you know, and that's kind of how it started. So, um, you know, and then it mushroomed into something that I didn't, you know, eventually gets buried at five grand a game. And then it's like, you know, the whole key is to let somebody, when you have somebody like that, you, you want him to owe you five, 600,000 because he's always betting from behind and psychologically he can't win. And, you know, on every level, that's how it should work. If, if guys were smart enough to do it, you know, some guys are like, Oh, you owe me 200 bucks. You can't play. You want the guy to owe you money because once he starts betting into himself, he can never get out. And, and that was one of the biggest things um, for us was to, to put people in that position. But then, to it's also, you know, one of our downfalls. You know, we were really successful in it. It's also knowing when to tell the guy, listen, you know what? I beat your brains in. You can't pay me no more. And that's okay. You're cool. And then the next year you go to him and you say, okay, you owed me, you know, five grand. Give me 500 and you can play again. And we'll start over. Because you can only beat a guy for so much. You know, if a guy makes 50 grand a year and he's got a family, he can't lose after taxes. What's he bringing home? 40 grand. He right. can't lose 20 grand. He's got to pay the mortgage. He's got to pay. Everybody's got to eat. You know, what could he lose? Three, four grand. And that's strapping them. You know, crazy. So you got to know who uh, to, to work the system too a little bit. Sure. So I also wanted to walk back to the 18 months you spent in prison like how was that because i know there's like there's like you know there's the the prison where people are like literally murdering people and then there's other prison where there's right there's more maybe gambling and non-criminal type cut type deals so i'd love to hear how the so how the experience was and like what you've learned <laughs> on, on, on the back end of it yeah you meet some crazy people so uh, i transported so they took me in at, at sentencing and uh they i had never spent a night in jail prison prior to that and i knew there was a good chance at sentencing they were going to bring me in even though it's absolutely ludicrous for somebody that's never missed a court appearance um the amount of money it costs the government to transport you to where you're going to go over the course of two or three months is like fifty thousand dollars 
and that's documented. So to, to take somebody in for no reason um, still blows my mind just from a taxpayer standpoint, but they took me in. Uh, I spent like three weeks at the Yates County jail, which was, uh, which wasn't that bad. I mean, that was nothing. And then uh, they transport you in the back of a conversion van to um, Youngstown, Ohio, where there's a U.S. Marshal hold, and it's a maximum security prison. Oh, shit. It was actually built by Bob Barker, the host from The Price is Right. So he, <laughs> he, actually, he actually owned a share in developing what was called, it was either CAA or CCA. I think it's CCA. Anyway, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost like a um, private prison system and different, like the U.S. Marshal Service and immigration will rent prison space from them and they'll house their inmates. So they, I was there as a maximum security prison and I get there at like three o'clock in the afternoon. And by the time they process you and you get to your cell, it's about 1155 at night and lock-ins at midnight. And they put me in a cell with two crips. And these two guys look at me like there ain't no white boy staying in our cell. And, you know, eventually you see a, a middle-aged white guy come in. What could he be in for? The first thing it goes to is child molestation or child porn or something like that. Um, as soon as they realized I wasn't in for that, I mean, we actually got along pretty good. And, uh, you know, the shit you see there is just, you know, they hand you underwear to wear and they got shit stains in them. And it's just oh. like, here you go. And you, you got no choice. It's like, wear them, don't wear them, no problem. But you're not getting anything else. Um, you know, you, once you, you learn the tools of the trade a little bit, you could make some moves and you could get better clothes and stuff like that. But I was there for about six weeks. And then they take me uh, transport again and they bring me from Youngstown, Ohio to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And it's like the movie Con Air where the plane comes in and all the buses go around it and they start <laughs> transporting prisoners. Some guys are getting on the plane. Some are coming off. You're going to this bus. So at the last minute, I still don't know where I'm going. They tell the, the guard yells out my name and he tells me I'm going to Canaan. So Canaan, I know, is a U.S. penitentiary. And I also know there's a prison camp there. And at sentencing, I'm arguing to the judge that I should be in a prison camp. And the prosecutor's telling the judge, I'm a violent criminal. I should be in a maximum security pen. So I asked the guard, I go, am I going to the pen or the camp? He fucking shuffles around on his clipboard. And he's like, dude, you're going to the pen. And I'm, I'm like ready to shit my pants. I'm like, these are some, I mean, I've read about Canaan. It's, you screw up at USP Canaan, you go to Supermax. Like there's nowhere else to yeah. go. And I'm like shit in my pants. And uh, I get on the, you know, I'm thinking about like just taking off running in shackles across the, the tarmac <laughs> and, and letting them gun me down. And then uh, I end up at, um, I get to Canaan and we go through processing. And that's when I find out I'm only there for transport, but I'm there for about two or three days, but you see some crazy stuff. You're in a separate unit. So no one else can, you know, get at you other than people in the unit. But like, somebody got attacked while I was there and like the prison goes in the lockdown and you see guards running everywhere and screaming and, you know, you see people with blood on them and it's, it's fucking nuts. It's nuts. And then from there, I ended up um, in Brooklyn at a, um, at a, what they call a federal detention center, which is basically for like New York inmates that are awaiting trial that are, that are now that are being held because they have so many more people there and so many more, they have an actual detention center for federal people instead of like a county jail. And uh, while I was there, I ran into my brother my brother was there. So I got <laughs> to see him. 
I got to see him a couple times and I was there for about a week. And then uh, they ended up taking me to um, FCI Danbury, Federal Correctional Institution Danbury in Connecticut. And uh, I did my, my last 15 months there or so. Um, but you meet some crazy people, you know, being a guy that didn't cooperate on his case and wasn't in for uh, child molestation or, or porn or anything yeah. like that. Um, you could hang out with pretty much anybody you want. So, you know, the Italian guys, the mobsters want to hang out with you. You know, the, my father's family's Jewish. The Jews wanted to hang out with me. I was born in Connecticut. So the Connecticut guys want to hang out with you. I'm from upstate New York, the upstate New York. So there was a good group of guys. You know, I tended to just be friendly to the guys that were good guys and, you know, and if you're with the Italians, the Italians only want you to be with them, you know, but then, you know, the, the pros and the cons are, is if God forbid there's a disturbance, you know, you're going to the mattresses in prison pretty much, you know, everybody's, everybody's fighting and locked down. And, you know, I just, I knew I had a short term and I didn't want to be in that case, but I made a lot of people that I would call friends still today that uh, I talked to in New York and, and, you know, uh, you guys ever hear of Greg Scarpa? Mm -mm. so you ever see the movie mississippi burning i don't think i have no okay so greg scarpa was a a mafia hitman for the colombo family and uh he died in the early 90s um he died of uh, i think he died of aids but long story short is is he was um a mafia hitman and in the 60s there was a civil rights thing going on in mississippi and they couldn't figure out where the bodies were buried of the civil rights leaders so they send the FBI sends Greg Scarpa down there to basically get out of the whoever the Ku Klux Klan to find out how and where they buried these civil rights leaders. And Scarpa comes back with all the info for him. He was working as an informant for them, too. Well, his son was murdered in the 90s in New York City, and he was actually murdered by a guy that I became pretty close with on the inside. So, you know, you meet some crazy, crazy, crazy individuals and different stories yeah you know and then i walk in there and there's you know there's one guy that i know from 10 years ago and there's another guy that i know from when i lived in connecticut we knew the same people and this and you know so it's 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 crazy how small the world really is that's nuts man that sounds the fact that you it's crazy how much you bounce around i didn't realize how much how much like how often inmates like get transferred and whatnot like that kind of stuff it's pretty crazy how much they move yeah, my brother's been in now for it'll be seven years next month, and he's been to probably five different places in seven years. Crazy. Yeah. So I got I got a two part question for you. I guess we'll start with the more uh, I don't know. I guess more like fun you could say call it. Well, like so obviously that that one day you said that guy bet like basically four hundred grand on that one day in college basketball. Like what was the yeah. most you guys took in on one day? Like most most plays that you guys took in. Oh, uh, if, if you can, if you can no say, no, I mean, let's put it this way. In my, in my case, they were, they, they said that in a three month period, I had taken 77 million in bets. Damn. So, <laughs> you know, I honestly, I mean, obviously Super Bowl Sunday is probably going to be the highest total at plays mm-hmm. in the day, but honestly, I wouldn't know an, ex- an exact amount. You know, okay. But I mean, if you, if you broke down 77 million over three um, months, yeah. divided out, I mean, you're taking a million dollars a day in bets, a little less. That's crazy. But um, the second part was obviously knowing what you, know, what you know now and being where you are, obviously you're done doing all that stuff. But like, well, wait, if you like had to like change one thing, like, was it getting involved with the hockey guys? Is that what kind of got you 
a little bit too big to what got you guys to come down or what what's the part where you um, changed up? I mean I mean it's 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 a tough tough question because you're in the business to make money. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So if you start refusing the guys that really could pay and you could right. pay for big numbers, you kind of limit what you could make. With that being said, you know, you make more money, you got to figure out ways to collect it, to launder it. You know, um, screw laundering. You could just bury the cash, but um, it's tougher for them to give you the money. You know, eventually they want to give you a check like he wanted to with me. Or, you know, um, my, my if I could do it over again, um, I wouldn't be as flashy as I was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would tuck it in some. I didn't need the house on the lake. I didn't need the huge backyard, you know, totally redone. I didn't need you know, three new cars at one time and, and, you know, multiple Rolexes and, and I didn't need all that stuff. So if I could do it over again, I would tuck it in, um, that I would do differently. And I definitely wouldn't be a degenerate fucking gambler and blow all the money. (laughs) (laughs) You were, you were living it. That's for sure. Exactly. (laughs) Um, so you also mentioned you're doing some business. Do you have two businesses now? And yep. so obviously you, that's great. You're doing so, those. I'd love to hear so more about, yeah, love my to hear wife, more about them. My, my wife has two businesses. I'm, I'm, oh, nice. I'm just, I'm just a worker every day. Nice. But, love that. Yeah. So how have you gotten yourself back on your feet now to a point where you're stuck next to big Joel Fieri? So, I mean, basically it's just been through some hard work and keeping my nose clean. Um, you know, uh, I had a company that, um, I was an original founder in, um, 10 years ago now, just over 10 years ago. And I found that with, uh, another financial guy who me and him put up the backing for the company, um, and my cousin, uh, my cousin Ray in, uh, three years after we started the company, about six months before I got arrested, Ray died of kidney cancer. Mm. and um the company really fell on some hard times we were doing really well we had almost 40 employees after three years and uh when i had went away and came home we were down to 14 employees um i started working for the company through some good luck and just some hard work you know we were able to land a few big contracts and turn it around and you know because of my legal situation um i had to buy the company back from the federal government which i did prior to my incarceration um when we bought it back, uh, it was on the pretense that my wife could own it. Mm-hmm. Um, so she owns the company now. And then, uh, when I came home, you know, um, the other thing was, is we had a little bit of money put aside and I was watching it just go down, 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 down. And, you know, I convinced my wife to let's buy a bar <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, obviously COVID's put a damper on that a little bit, but we've made mm-hmm. it through mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, it's a, just a nice supplemental income to what we make. And my wife works at the hospital. I work for the company and uh, that's it. Just trying not to uh, get into bad habits again. Sure. And what, what bar is it that you own? A flight wine bar. So it's down by Tony D's in Cornhill. Okay. Nice. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Oh, I actually have one last one. Was there ever a time? Like, what was the one, like, was there like a sucker bet when like someone put through a bet? You're like, all right, like that's all that bet always loses like again i don't know much about gaming but for you being what you were like was it always like oh like this guy like this guy's got no chance (laughs) there was more than a few customers um like that (laughs) but there was there was a couple customers there was one i can't remember the guy's name right now 
but there was one car dealer um, who, car salesman guy who would uh, put through bets, and you just knew he had no, like, you didn't even have to add up his wins and losses. You could just say to him the next day, how'd you do? And he'd just be like, yep, lost 600, yep, lost 1,800. <laughs> and, like, it, it became just funny money because, like, he would owe you, you know, he's $100 better, but he'd owe you 30000 So it's just like, Damn. listen, I'm coming by and I'm grabbing 200 this week. And that's all you could get. You know what I mean? But, like, that's just, he just bet into himself and bet into himself and never won. And then there was there was guys like, um, you guys know who Kenny Kaiser is? The old Mm-mm. Major League Baseball umpire. So when, when know, yeah. Ke- Kenny Kaiser was from Rochester, he was a uh, major league baseball umpire. And uh, he, when they, when the umpires went on strike, what was it in the late nineties? Yeah. They all, they all, they yeah. all did their mass resignation. He was one that did his mass resignation. Um, there was like eight of them that didn't get to take their resignation back. He was one of the eight. He was a fucking prick and they were happy to see him go, but mm-hmm. he was a degenerate gambler. And years later he used to play with us and, you know, same situation. He would just, I remember him, this is back, back when I had the state case, because we were writing bets back then. And he would just give you so many bets. It would take up like three sheets of paper. And, and then that was at like one o'clock on a Sunday yeah. and he would give you, some, and they're all for like, like 200, 300, 200, 300. And you just go down the list. And, but it was like, at the end of the day, you could just rip them up and just say, Hey, what do you owe me? Yeah. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> he, he, couldn't, he, he couldn't win. You know, he, he had so he would have to go eight and Oda. And then he could still lose money. Like it was just, it, it was crazy stuff. You know, he, he was another one. Um, but there, there was a handful over the year. There's another guy from Connecticut that kind of got caught up in my case. And, uh, you know, he just, you let him do whatever you wanted, but he was just a gen- He couldn't win. It didn't matter what the fuck he did. He just couldn't <laughs> win. Like it, it, it didn't, he'd give you 10 games a day and he would be lucky if he won three of them. <laughs> Rough. Where did you guys get? Follow up on that. Where did you, where would you guys get lines from? So obviously, you mentioned back in the day, it was just writing them in. So there wasn't like a site you so, could use, right? Like, well, yeah, there work? was. So okay. years ago, when we first started out, and you were taking business over the phone, writing it, and that was prior to the state case. Um, there was a service called Don Best Sports, and you would go on, you'd pay them like a, it was anywhere from a hundred to five hundred a month for their line service, and I would pull up on my computer, and it would give me the lines from every sports book and casino from the United States, Europe, the islands, wherever I wanted, Nicaragua, Costa Rica. And um, you would use those numbers and based off, you know, they're all relatively the same. So, you know, you would, you know, obviously if Buffalo is minus three or three and a half and you're in Rochester, you're taking the three and a half because you know, everybody's going to bet the bills, Mm -hmm. you know, or, or, you know, you're going to fade to the higher number on the giants and the jets and the Yankees and, Mm -hmm. you know, stuff like that. And then, you know, elsewhere, you're going to take the more common number and, and, you know, based on how your bets are coming in, you might adjust it a little bit. Um, but that's how you did it back then. Then years later, when we went to online, um, where we would just give you an account, um, then you just took the, uh, you know, basically the numbers they were using and you trusted them, you know, mm. and you could make adjustments to it if you wanted. But for the most part, you just let it ride. Hmm. You know, there was no... The, the, they know more than us so why screw with it <laughs> right right you know what i mean kind of thing sure so then my last one then is more geared towards the, the current day and we have tons of states legalizing sports gambling um and then obviously you're seeing how much it's providing from revenue standpoint for states so i'd love to hear more about like 
what you think that's going to happen to like the bookies of the world. And also if this like legalization of gambling was around when you were still doing it, like how you think that would have been able to like, like hide you guys from stuff or like, however you think that would, that would have worked for when you were, when you were booking. So, so the first thing I think is, I don't think the legalization of sports betting is going to get rid of the neighborhood bookie. And mm-hmm. the reason being is, is if somebody like Joe, if somebody like your dad wanted to bet sports, he's not going to go to Del Lago and put up a thousand dollars to bet sports. And then, you know, for example, um, you bet two games for safe, you know, for even numbers, a hundred bucks a piece at Del Lago. And you come home, if you're not staying there, how do you get your four o'clock bet in? What if you only got 200? You know what I mean? Guys want to bet on credit. They don't want to have to put the money up. Mm-hmm. You know, in some instances, if you truly have the money and it doesn't matter to you and you could go to the, the and you're not a degenerate and you could go to the sports book and you could make your bets for the day or the week and you don't mind traveling the hour. Yeah, it's great. But most people are going to want your neighborhood bookie. It's just the way it is. I mean, they want to deal with people. They want to, you know, you can't go to Del Lago and make your bets and say, Hey, you know, I'm a degenerate. Can I get 10% back on my losses? <laughs> They're going to laugh at you, you know, but your neighborhood bookie, like I'm telling you those guys that were complete degenerates that couldn't mm-hmm. win. You think I wasn't doing something for them? Mm-hmm. You know, that's stuff that, that DraftKings doesn't understand and, and FanDuel doesn't understand and never will understand. I'll give you an example of something. FanDuel or DraftKings at Del Lago ran a promotion two years ago in December. And the promotion was, is if you bet an NHL hockey game on a Wednesday in December, you got a free $25 match play on the game. So now think about this. <clears throat> Where they screwed up was they didn't allow you to do, they allowed you to do it as many times as you wanted. So by the time I caught wind of it, I had a guy there with $300,000 in cash looking to make $25 bets to get the free match play because you could bet both sides of the game. So so think about it. You could bet $25 in bets and you could bet it as many times as you want. So you could make a hundred thousand in bets on one side and a hundred thousand on the other. And on the side that wins, it's going to pay you 200,000. And on the side that loses, you're only going to lose 100000 That's how stupid they were. And the line was out the door at the casino. Damn. <laughs> when people caught on on it. Yeah. What, what did they do? They took 25000 in bets from the first guy in line, and then they put the closed sign in the window. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they, they did this for they did this for two weeks straight on Wednesdays before it caught on. And they took losses both weeks. They just didn't take them to the amount they were about to take them to. But it's just crazy, the things. So that just shows you that they may have legalized sports betting, but they're idiots. <laughs> and not only that, I mean, then you have New York State. I mean, I can only really comment on the New York State stuff. New York State does everything possible to fuck everything up. They do. <laughs> you know, you, you create legalized sports betting and okay, but it's only legal at Del Lago in turning stone and whatever other casinos can do it yeah that's great if you're there but if you're not there like why can't you do it on your phone where Mm -hmm. you you know in vegas if you want to place a sports bet you could do it on an app on the phone as long as you're in vegas yeah in the gps traction same thing in jersey right yeah that's where i'm at yeah you you could do it on your phone well in new york state they have to they have to fuck with everything that works everywhere else so (laughs) they tell you you can't do it well 
if your true goal is to get rid of the sports book, you, you got to be more friendly than what you're doing. And then, you know, the other thing is, is you can't bet on a, you can't bet on a college, a college game with a yeah. team that's playing in New York state, you know, Vegas years ago, you couldn't bet on UNLV if you were in Vegas, which I guess I understand, but even they spartaned up to know <laughs> you could bet on them. It doesn't right. matter. You know, so so if if I did want to go to a Syracuse basketball game and I did want to bet Syracuse on the way at Del Lago, I can't do it. Like they do everything possible to put their wrench into something to control it when they don't need to sometimes. And it's just, you know, I mean, the proof is no one's fixing a college basketball game for two grand. You know, Mm -hmm. I I can't I can't go to a Syracuse basketball player and say, hey, here's two grand. Throw the game for me. And then me go to Del Lago and bet the game. I can't bet it for enough money to make it worth my while, nor can I give the kid enough money to make it worth my while. If I was going to do something like that, I'd have to do it in Vegas. So why can't I bet it at Del Lago? Like it's, it's, it doesn't make any sense in what they do. Um, so do I think the sports book is going to go away? No, I don't think so. Um, I think it's going to put more pressure on them. But where there's money to be made, there's always going to be a profession, I feel. And uh, I think you're going to see more gambling busts because when the state's making money, they're going to look to break balls a little sure. more. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it's going to go away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good insight. Great stuff. That's all I had, Frank. That was awesome, Joe. That's all I had too, man. I appreciate it. No problem, guys. No, I know Frank's super into it, so I'm sure it was really yeah. cool for him to hear all that. <laughs> I mean, I had to, had to tone down, you know, because I live in here in Jersey, so it's easy to, to hit up DraftKings and Pando and whatnot, but I had, had to pack some money away during the pandemic, so now that sports are coming back, we'll maybe we'll open it up again. But I've always had just interest just in the industry itself. Again, because I work for the New Jersey Devils, so we were one of the first teams to have a sports betting partnership, so, like, we got to learn about stuff very quickly. Um, and I just that's great. always interested in it, yeah. Yeah, so I uh, year, years ago, Who's the voice of the New Jersey Devils? Who's um, the radio guy? Radio guy's Matty Laughlin. No. That's who we currently who's, is. Who's, who's the TV guy? Like on, uh, on uh, Fox Sports or whoever whoever the, 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 the TV network is. MSG? Yeah. Uh, Danico's on there. Chico, it used to be Chico Rush as well. I forgot who the new guy is. Ken okay, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember who the guy is, but a quick story is, is I'm in – Manhattan it's December of uh I don't know 11 or 12 and I'm, ha- I'm I'm at a Sabres Ranger game game's over and uh me and one of my hockey player buddies end up at a bar an Italian restaurant in uh, Greenwich Village called Gaitana's and we're down there we're eating and we're there with my brother and a couple other guys and uh all of a sudden he starts talking to some guy at the bar and he knows him because he's the voice of the devils no way. And he, and he lives like right down the street or something. And we ended up sitting drinking with the guy. I can't remember his name. He could have been one of the guys you just told me. I can't remember if he was the, the TV guy or the radio guy, but they yeah, knew man, each other. As soon as he told them who he was, he, they knew each other. And we were, yeah. we, we were, you know, drinking together for two, three hours. And then in, in the, I believe the devil's played that night. He had come in after the game or something. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't, I have no idea if any of those guys are around like around 15 years ago. I've only been with them for a couple of years, but <laughs> that's yeah. hilarious. That's great. Really small world. Love it. It's wild great. stuff. Well, it's good. Good to see you back on the outside and enjoying life again and 
dealing with uh, again living next to Big Joe, but you know, I'm sure that it, it causes for a lot of laughs. Over yeah, there. next time we'll get both we'll get both you on. Yeah, right. Yeah, let, let me know at any time. Awesome, thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. Appreciate right, it, guys. Thank you. Take care. You are listening to the Sunday Sauce Podcast.